0: Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask you that you come by your spirit and that you come and rest with us. Give us courage and give us hope and give us the great message of Easter uh, this week that will change our lives. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. If, uh, if you go to Westminster uh, Abbey and you go into the north um, isle of Westminster Abbey, there's a plinth there to uh, William Wilberforce. And William Wilberforce, of course you will know as the, uh, the person who saw the abolition uh, of, the, of the slave trade in his life. And when Parliament wanted to honor him, the first thing that they did was not to honor him for the slave trade, which had uh, been abolished, which he was so instrumental in, but it was for this, and these are the words. In an age endowed with great and powerful men, He was the one who changed the character of his time. And my question for you and for me is, what will it take for you and for me, ordinary people of the pew, to see the character of our time, the narrative of our time, the story of our time changed? I don't know about you, but it makes quite depressing reading when we look around and see the things in our society that look as though it's boiling over with tension, financial, racial, political, social. What will it take to remove this seemingly endless continuing stream of just horrible stories of abuse from the church or from Oxfam or shown from the Me Too movement or in our homes? Do you know loneliness is of such an extraordinary proportion in our nation that the government has appointed a minister for loneliness. What will it take to see the reverse of the decline in our family values and our structure of our families in our society or for a fatherless generation to become fathered again? Don't you look at this broken world around us and say, I wish it was not so but I wonder whether you would say I wish it were different but I want to help to make that difference. Do you want to do something about it? In the last week I went to hear a lecture by one of the most famous correspondents in the world, the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman. And he was going through the serious breakdown uh, worldwide of political structures and uh, populist movements. And uh, the question was, what could be done to change this? And he said, well, the individual on their own, they can't do that. And politicians have long since passed the stage when they're able to do almost anything. But the only thing he said, he said, we must come back to local, healthy communities. Therein lies the strength of our futures. And I thought, yes. I can believe for that. I can see that in a local community, a healthy local community, which the church can be driving in this country, I can see that there would be hope for the community, for our church, for our city, and for our country. Don't you? I think the world needs hope. And the hope is that Jesus is the hope of this world. And that's a great promise, because our media don't give us much hope. They can tell us what's wrong, but they can't tell us how to make anything better. Your Twitter feed, you think of your social media feed. What, what, is, what kind of food is being fed to you? Do you know that the estimate now is that 51% of our time is spent in cyberspace where no one is in control? Is this food the bread of life? Or is it some other dangerous feed that's coming into our lives? Philip Larkin, the poet, said, You know, there is an immense slackening ache in our society. And I, you know, there are so many wonderful things going on in the society, but there is in the heart an aching soul. There is an ache, a longing, a desire for a healthy community. We need hope, not just wishful thinking, not just some optimism. We need hope. And I'm immensely encouraged by the fact that the hope of the world is Jesus Christ. So I wrote the book, um, which Martin mentioned, called Strange Kingdom. The title is taken from the martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was murdered by the Nazis. just before the end of the Second World War, and he said this. He said, a king who dies on a cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. But this strange kingdom may be strange. Certainly it's weird to believe in a king who dies on a cross. But it gives us an unshakable hope The unshakable hope that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And when I wrote this, I wrote this of of meditations on the cross because the cross is the single most important event of history because at that moment, mankind's search for God ended and God's reaching to humankind occurred on the death on the cross. It was God at his very best meeting humankind at our worst, when we turned away from God, turned away from the healthy community that he longed that we would have at ease with ourselves, at ease with our neighbors, at ease with our gods. It was Jesus who took the hit for you and for me that we might go free. I don't think I can illustrate it any better than to honor the extraordinary courage and heroism of Lieutenant Colonel Arnaud Beltran yesterday in the supermarkets of Carcassonne. When the terrorist went in there and was holding these people hostage, he gave his life. He went in and said to them, I will give you me for them. I will exchange my life for their lives. And that a great exchange, which is what happened on the cross, was shown to us in an extraordinary man's courage. And of course he died in the shots of the terrorist. He was the shield, as Jesus was the shield, between God and the things that set us apart from God. Jesus did this great exchange on the cross. He took our hopelessness, he gave us hope. He took our purposelessness and gave us purpose. He took our addictions and gave us the freedom from it. But it's foolish, as Paul says, that those who look at the cross, it's foolishness. But to those who believe, it's the power of God for good living, for healthy community. is what Paul tells us. Weird, yes, But to a weary world, it is God's power of love. And we need hope. And the cross gives us hope. St. Augustine said that hope has two beautiful daughters. Anger and courage. Anger at what is going on in the world and courage to do something about it. Now, Jesus was angry. There were times when he went into the temple and took a whip and whipped out the money changers and the, the people that were exploiting the ordinary people in the temple. We would surely want to be angry with, our, with the way in which we treat people, our consumerist world, the fact that human trafficking is still occurring in our country We should be angry about the injustices, the intolerance, the indifference of our lives to the needs of others. Are you angry? It's a good thing to be provided your anger is in the pursuit of hope. How will we turn the tide in this nation? We need courage, we need hope. The anger at what is going on and the courage to see it changed. And you know the great thing when you look about, look at courage, you just see people, individuals who've stood against the flow of conventional wisdoms at their time. You think of, of Churchill and the, in that film, The Darkest Hour, when he stood against the political tide of appeasement. And you know, up and down the country, and when the film ends, people have been standing up and clapping. Why? Because we look to someone who went against the tide. Or what about the suffragettes? We celebrate a hundred years of the way in which they went against the society's view that women should not be emancipated and fought for the emancipation and the votes for women. What if you're of a scientific band, you think of Stephen Hawking who died a few weeks ago. And the extraordinary belief of this man with motor neurone disease for 50 years of his life, what courage is that? Determined to show that the Einstein theories of relativity were not the end of the, of, of the quest for scientific inquiry, but that there was something more to be done, even though the scientific establishment, the mathematical establishments, didn't look that way. Or if you're in the sporting world... This week we saw the death of Sir Roger Bannister, who was the first person to run a mile in under four minutes. At the time, the prevailing physiological um, view of the medical establishment and and of the sporting world was that it's not physically, humanly possible to run a mile in under four minutes. But he did. But do you know the interesting thing is, that that record lasted for 45 days and it was broken again. Why? Because once something is shown to be capable of achievement, it can be achieved. It inspires others to do the same thing. But the story of the Bible is the story of ordinary people used by God to do extraordinary things. Just think of Joshua and Caleb. They go out with 12 people across to the Jordan they look at Canaan twelve people come back ten of them say you've got to be joking don't go over there there are giants in that land and they say they're not giants they're grasshoppers and they say to me, it can be done you know, I don't know about you but every time I read a story like Churchill or or, um, or the great stories of the Bible and I sort of say well do you know what It's either an example or an exception, and I think I'm the exception. But the Bible isn't there to give us exceptions. It is there to give us the examples for us to be able to live on. And I can see in that example the fact that going against the flow is part of the central teaching of Jesus. Hear his words in Matthew chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Do you want to be part of the few who find life? Or part of the flow of the majority who don't. In the message translation, it's brilliantly described as this. Don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with sure-fire, easy-going formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff. Even though crowds of people do, the way to life, the way to God is vigorous and requires total attention. That we are a minority. But Winston Churchill said, don't underestimate the power of a dedicated minority. There is momentum in the minority. There is a momentum in knowing that the good news of Jesus Christ is good news. That even though we may be a small group of people worldwide, nonetheless, those who believe in Jesus Christ can see the world changing because there is momentum in that minority. And I asked myself the question, Well, what percentage of people will it take before the good news of Jesus Christ is adopted in the nation? Is it 80%? Is it 50%? And then I saw a study from one of the universities that said No, it's 10%. That if 10% of people have an unshakable belief, their belief will in due course be adopted by the minority. I can believe for that. But it is an unshakable belief. And the unshakable belief is the belief that is grounded in the cross of Jesus Christ. What does this mean for you and for me in our ordinary day-to-day lives? means that we have to choose to go with a few to stand out against the crowd. It takes courage. George Orwell said that in times of deceit, which surely those great rallies were, but in times of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act, and we need revolutionary acts because fake news is hitting us everywhere on our social media, in our media, in our conversations we need a revolutionary act of truth. And the truth is that Jesus Christ is the good news for our world. I've really been encouraged by this concept of the Bible using the people of the small print. Not necessarily the ones in the headlines. To do some very great things. I mentioned at the start the story of William Wilberforce, but have you ever heard of the name of Thomas Clarkson? Let me tell you. Thomas Clarkson was 19 and he wrote an essay in 1760 on Is the Slave Trade Lawful? That Latin, which is what they wrote their essays in in the universities at the time, was translated into English. He founded the Society for the Abolition of the Slave Trade. They needed somebody to be the front of it. They formed the society and they went to someone called William Wilberforce, a young MP at the time, and said, Will you adopt this? We all know about Wilberforce. But what about the small print of Clarkson? We've heard of Peter, we've heard of Paul, we've heard of Moses, we've heard of David. But do we know how much God has written into the small print of the ordinary lives of Christians that have followed him throughout the centuries and that appear in the, in the Bible? i tell you something, I've been a banker long enough to know that the small print matters. I've known lots of people lose a lot of money by not looking at the small print. And if you don't believe me, just... Think of your last insurance claim on your holiday. and When you try and claim for something and you say, oh, a small print says no, or the delay on your flight is, you know, only after seven hours do I pay out or whatever it is. Small prints matter. Just think, of, just think of what, when you tick agree to a search engine, have you any idea of what you're agreeing to? It's very powerful of what you've agreed to. Your data can be used by anybody. Is part of that agreement. You might remember what is now famously known in social media as those people who put the Herod clause into one of these small prints. The Herod clause basically said, I hereby agree um, to um, sacrifice my firstborn child and failing my firstborn child, my dog. And they embedded it in a contract and people signed it because we don't read the small print. The company fortunately said that they weren't going to enforce um, the, uh, the, 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 the print. The small print matters. So I want to introduce you to one of those characters of the small print. Now you've read about Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph, who, bec- who was an Israeli, became prime minister of, e- of, of Egypt. That's quite an achievement, You might remember Joseph, who was the father, the natural earthly father of uh, of Jesus. But I want to talk to you about another person. He's mentioned four times in every one of the Gospels. He never says a single word in any of the records. You know, it's late in the final week of, of the Passover, of Easter, Dave. Friday, the... Jesus has died on a cross. Herod, uh, well, the high priests are sort of delighted it's all over. The Romans are saying there's not going to be a, uh, an, an insurrection. Judas has killed himself. The crowd has disappeared. The stage is empty. Except for one man. We know very little about him. There's a quiet moment in Scripture at that moment, but don't be fooled. That man was called Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea, nobody knows anything about. It's a nondescript town, but let me read to you from Luke's Gospel at those moments. Luke 23 verse 48, when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight, which is the crucifixion of Jesus, saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Do you look at Jesus from a distance and watch? Now there was a man called Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. You know, I love the Bible because it is so alive. I've read through these passages a thousand times. But when I was preparing strange kingdom, this sentence leapt at me. He had not consented to their decision and action. He was not part of the majority. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock one in which no one had yet been laid it was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin the woman who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it I want to piece together just some of those pictures that we see of Joseph He was a man of possession. He was a prominent person. He was a member of the council, a man of privilege. He had power. He knew how to steward his influence and also his affluence. But he was an extraordinary man. He was a just man, a righteous man. Because when that council came together to say that Jesus, this was the time for him to be be condemned... Joseph stood against the majority. He was not part of the majority. He did not agree with what they were doing. And in those days, there was an urn that was placed in the middle of a council chamber. And you would cast your vote publicly. And I can see Joseph coming to that urn and casting his no. Because he saw in Jesus that this was an innocent man. And he was crying out for justice against the flow of the majority, against the overwhelming prevailing view that Jesus was a troublemaker and himself should be put to death. He was not part of that majority. He chose to go with justice. Do you know, I I think it's hard to go against the flow. I'm thinking of parents who are trying to place some restrictions on the social media that their children or teenagers can actually be watching against the flow, which actually says, well, There's nothing wrong with it, it's just everybody else is watching more and more. Why not my children? I think the business person not going with the flow of cutting corners at work to maximize profits, it's hard. It takes courage to stand up and be in the minority. I think of the students standing up for free speech in a supposedly safe place at university. I think of those young, young high school students that we've been seeing on our televisions yesterday in the March for Life, wanting to do something against what appears to be a prevailing view of keeping people free to do whatever they want to do with their guns. It's hard in a tiny small way and I I just think back of my own days as as a young student in South Africa when the prevailing view amongst the majority of the ruling class was that blacks and white people shouldn't be mixing together and how the injustice of it burnt in our hearts and in a tiny way. We played a little postscript, a little small print in the struggle that eventually saw that wicked system overthrown. But you know, Joseph was like so many of us. The Bible says he, had, he was afraid. He had fear. He, didn't, he was a disciple, but secretly. And I think to myself, oh Joseph, if only you weren't secret. If only you had been with Jesus, you could have seen Lazarus rising. You could have walked with him and talked about the kingdom and about what was going to come. But he didn't. He followed him secretly. Something happened to him though. I don't know what it was. But I suspect it was that when he saw this innocent man dying, blooded, crown of thorns, nails in his arms, he said to himself, here is is the one who is the person I should have given the whole of my life to. Maybe it was hearing the Roman soldier saying, Surely this is the Son of God. And a boldness took hold of him. Fear went and there was fire in his life, in his body. And he went to Pilate and he said to Pilate, Can I have that body? And he took the body down. Something happened. He changed from being an admirer of Jesus to being a follower of Jesus. So in Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher said this, The difference between an admirer and a follower still remains no matter where you are. The admirer never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays it safe. Well, Joseph didn't play it safe. And I don't want to play it safe, do you? Joseph turned from being an admirer to a follower and boldly went to, to Pilate. But even though he was a practical man, like it was left to the business people, the businessmen, to go and buy the grave clothes, to buy with his friend Nicodemus, to buy the spices, hundred 100,000 pounds equivalent of spice to the, for the embalming of the body to find a tomb, possibly his own, and expensive as that was. Where were the people of the headlines, I asked myself? Where were they? Where was Peter? Where was Andrew? Where was James? Where were those disciples who walked with him and said that anything could happen, they would never leave him? Where were they at that moment? I'll tell you where they were, because you heard it when we read it. But all those who knew him, including the woman who followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching what was happening. But one person, a postscript to the, to the, to the story of Easter. But you know, he didn't do it alone. And it's so important if you're going to stand against the majority, find a friend or a partner. Nicodemus, who also was with Jesus a secret follower. He brought him along. But we need courage. There are three things that we need to do if we want to have the courage to stand against the flow of our time. The first is keep your head. Joseph used his brains, his argument, his skill in the Sanhedrin. He was not in favor. He would have argued with them, saying, this is wrong. Second is, guard your heart. When he saw the dying Christ, something melted within him. And he said, I cannot just just watch like the rest of the headline acts. I can't watch. I'm going to do something about it. His heart melted, and he did something about it. Use your hands, be practical, do something. When God stirs in your heart to take some action, it's not just there for you to watch, it's there for you to walk in that way. Keep your head. Let your heart rule, but not over your heart, your head, and use your hands. Joseph of Arimathea saw this turning point of history. The Apostles' Creed, which we recite in our churches, was that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. Paul tells us Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The cautious, the cautious Joseph has become the courageous Joseph. You know, this king has died. There are no fanfares of the trumpets. There are no sort of holidays proclaimed. There is none of the regalia of a king. All that is left is for Joseph to take the dead weight of Jesus in his arms. Walking up the hill. And he walks up the hill. And here is the Messiah dead. The hope of Israel, dead. The person who was going to relieve them from the rule, the rule of the Romans, dead. No more would there be a Lazarus being seen being risen because that hope of resurrection was dead. No more was there going to be the expectation of, of hearing him speak the Sermon on the Mount because his voice was dead. He carried the dead weight of Christ in his arms. There come times in your life and in my life when the hopes that we have are dead. The expectations of our achievements in the world are dead. When the thought that we might be able to be doing some great deeds or some acts that we really thought was the right thing to do, they dead. We carry the dead weight of Christ in our arms. You know, there is a a very famous picture called the footprints. It shows you how two people walking next to each other on the beach, Jesus and someone else. And then those footprints change and they become just two footprints. And the caption is, well, why did you leave me alone? And the answer is from Jesus, at that time, I was carrying you. But there are no posters that show you the dead Christ in the hand of Joseph of Arimathea, or a people in this room who carry the dead hopes, expectations, stories untold, hopes unfulfilled. There is a silent Saturday when the actors have all gone, Friday's over, Sunday's resurrection hasn't happened, and you and I got to work through the silent Saturday, like Joseph of Arimathea. But know this, that he rose again from the dead, that we carry with him in our silent Saturdays. God took what seemed to be this dismal and horrible thing of Friday and turned it into a glorious beginning. You know, it's one thing... To follow a live person, a live prophet, a live Messiah. Because the expectation is he's coming, he's going to change the world. Israel is going to be changed. The new kingdom of God is going to come into this place. But it's quite another to hold a dead person in your hand who you actually hoped might get you out of the whole mess that you see yourself in. But he uses the small things in our lives to bring forth the big things. Don't underestimate what God can do tomorrow with the efforts that you make today. Joseph didn't know what was going to happen. I often think to myself, what happened? But nowhere in the Acts of the Apostles do we see any more of Joseph. On that Sunday morning, that glorious morning when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, Joseph Must have heard from the tweets, from the retweets, from the social media, from the talk that he had risen, but we don't hear anything of that. There are times when God calls us to do something quite specific, and not many people will recognize that it happens, but we carry that weight of Christ within us. I can't do it alone. Don't you want to say today, Lord, I give you my head. I give you my heart. I give you my hands, as Joseph did, to, to, to believe that you can use me even though I may be the small print, the postscript, the footnote. Because it's when all the small script comes together, when the footnotes are aggregated, when the postscripts become the script, what Jesus does with the small print, by the power of his Spirit, He makes it into the substantive print. And if we want to change the story of our time, we need to bring back hope into our lives, into our churches, our cities, our communities, and our country. And we can do it. Why? Because the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. That same power, that resurrection power, is with you and with me. Silent Saturday becomes the surprising Sunday because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Let us stand. Let us worship.